Here is one of our many recordings from the Revolutionary Ideas Online Festival held on the 28th and 29th of November 2020. This was a weekend of Marxist discussion and debate held by Socialist Alternative. Want to join our fight? Go to socialistalternative.net today and get in touch to play your role in the struggle for a world free of capitalist oppression. So we're almost done, thankfully, with this crazy year. It's about to be December. I can't even believe it. Um, You know, of course, crazy because of the COVID pandemic, which in the UK, Black people are four times more likely to die of the pandemic. In the US, one in 1,000 people will have and will die of um, COVID-19. Now, these numbers, of course, are exacerbated by cuts to the NHS. And here in the US, the millions of people that go uninsured don't even ever go to the hospital. And so today we're discussing Black liberation at a time when our national economies, too, are being devastated by this pandemic. In the UK, already 45% of Black people live below the poverty line. But even so, we have seen the reemergence of one of the largest movements of our time, and that's extremely exciting, and we'll get into that. At the beginning of the year, if you can remember that far back, I know it's hard, in February, Ahmad Arbery, in, um, he, he lived in Georgia in the U.S., was murdered in the street by the two men that hopped out of their pickup and killed him. And then in March, Breonna Taylor, say her name, she was murdered in, in her apartment in her sleep. And then in May, George Floyd, he was murdered. We watched him die under the knee of the police officer. And, and you know, the, the buildup of these three um, devastating uh, murders reignited the Black Lives Matter banner But this time that it happened, it was at a much higher level than we saw before. In the US, we moved on from the demand of body cameras on police to just defund them altogether, right? In Bristol, we saw um, activists knock down the slave trader statue um, and groups have developed uh, around Black Lives Matter on on, more than just anti-racism, but also sometimes anti-capitalism and sometimes even a fight for fundamental change for a better world. Now, this doesn't just happen coincidentally, right? Struggles grow and they learn from each other. And it's hard, but it's important to draw out the lessons that are being learned throughout this struggle, especially in our education systems and the media and Hollywood. They do a great job of whitewashing history. So that's why we come together like this as siblings of the class struggle to discuss the lessons and perspectives for the future. So the question when talking about Black liberation is how do we get there? How do we get to black liberation? But before we can answer that, we have to understand where racism itself comes from. If we understand where it comes from, then we can understand how to fight it. And the answer is not arguing with racists about how much they suck, although we've all been there, right? Racism is something that has been around for so long that sometimes it feels like it's always existed, but it hasn't, it's not true. In fact, racism was created as a means to divide the working class with that whole divide and conquer idea. Now we see the capitalists, the capitalists are those that own the wealth, they own the means of production, they own the land, they own everything. They use all sorts of these special oppressions to divide the working class. I say special oppressions like um, your gender or sex, country of origin, religion, ethnicity, all of these different things. And the reason I call them special is because we're all, all, all workers are oppressed under capitalism, 
We all work all day and we don't get to take home all the wealth that we've created. But of course there are groups, groups of people in the working class like women, like black people that get oppressed more than others sometimes. But back to where racism came from because it wasn't always around. Um, we can trace it back to the Atlantic slave trade. Slaves were brought to Brazil, a lot were brought to Brazil all throughout the Caribbean, the US and even England. Now, without going into the, the deep history of the slave trade, um, we know that the slave traders that sold the slaves and the plantation owners that owned the fields of sugar and cotton and tobacco, they got insanely rich off of this. Now they chose African slaves, not because they were black, not because of racism, but because at the time they were cheap and available and they knew how to harvest the land. They tried to enslave the indigenous people that lived in the Americas, but they died of smallpox and many of them escaped. This meant that what, you know, um, the, the people that got rich off of the slave trade meant that white people, you know, living in these areas and living in England that didn't own slaves, they were poor and they didn't really have a lot of work because the slaves did the, did the work. In the U.S., English indentured servants were used alongside slaves, but the difference between them and the black Africans was they were freed after seven years, theoretically, right? A lot, oftentimes their servitude had to continue. But then in 1676, Bacon's rebellion happened. And this is a very, very exciting point in history. This is where we see a united black and white slave coming together basically to fight back against the, the oppression of the slave owners, more than 50 of them died in battle. And this very much scared the slave owners, right? The unification of black workers and white workers um, was scary to them. They knew that they were outnumbered. And so at this moment is they, they, they created a separation to divide the black and the white slaves, to divide the classes, if you will. English at this time, people were viewed as being white. And we started to see after this, a scientific justification to black slaves, which we've all read about. All throughout slavery, there were examples of rebellions like this and fight back. And the, 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 the slave owners had to, had to um, purposefully, you know, um, stop these, these, these movements from growing. Now racist justification was used in the Americas to defend slavery and later was used in Europe to justify colonialism. This whole idea of the superiority of the white race was developed. Now in the, in the US, slavery ended in the 1860s and just 10 years later, that same racial superiority was used for 40 years to cut up Africa into colonies by Europe. Racism itself has material roots in capitalism. And as long as society has these classes, the social conditions for racism will remain. We'll talk a little more about that later. But there was a group of people who did understand this, um, and I don't think it would be right if I didn't mention them, um, but they were called the Bolsheviks and um, they helped lead the Russian revolution in 1917. Now this revolution was one of the greatest events in history because the working class took control of the society. Now, Russians didn't have the question of black liberation, you know, in front of them, but they did have the question of liberation of other oppressed ethnic minorities throughout the Soviet Union. And they understood 
that the fight for the liberation of these groups would help spread the socialist revolution. And so they fought on behalf and for, um, you know, ethnic minorities' right to self-determination, we call it. Now, we saw in the U.S., though, the examples of the incorrect approach when it, approach when it comes to the question of um, uh, Black workers and um, Black people being specially oppressed. Some groups took the incorrect approach of having a Black nationalist um, approach, which we still see sometimes come about, but especially um, in the earlier to mid 1900s, um, this idea that Black people need to create their own state, um, um, you know, because we have to run everything ourselves. But what this just does is make Black oppressors and Black capitalists. And that's not, um, uh, that doesn't fix the problem. It just shifts who the oppressor is um, as opposed to being the white, the, the white person. This doesn't build a united working class movement, which is what um, we need when we're fighting for the liberation of any group of people. But much of the early Black organizing um, started in labor struggles. The first recorded petition of Black workers in the U.S. fighting back was Black women, and there were seamstresses demanding a higher, higher wage in Mississippi, which is the Deep South. Different organizations like the Knights of Labor or the Industrial Workers of the World, they made a very conscious attempt to organize Black workers into unions. You know, after slavery and throughout the 1900s, Black labor was cheaper. And so it was for the betterment of all workers to be organized in labor unions to make sure that wages stayed high. In the US, we saw the Congress of Industrial Workers in the 30s organize unskilled factory workers who were mostly Black and immigrant. These workers were kept out of the craft trade unions and were not taken on as apprentices, so they could never learn a trade. Now, the organization of these unskilled, I say unskilled, right? But these unskilled workers, um, the, you know, in Northern cities, this was fundamental. Um, yeah, the organization of them. But they fell short, this organization, the Congress of Industrial Workers, the CIO, um, by not organizing the Southern workers and by supporting um, FDR with his New Deal and the Democratic Party. Even Rosa Parks, who's known for leading bus boycotts, boycotts she started organizing women houseworkers and seamstresses against rape. She built campaigns to stop lynchings um, and to free wrongly accused Black um, men and boys from crimes. But unfortunately, that was a problem then, and it's still a problem now of the labor movement not taking up social issues. Even now, when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement, so much more could be won if the unions took up the demands of defunding the police and prosecuting the police, for example, just a small example. But going back to the bus boycotts in the 1950s, these are exciting times. I mean, you have Black people coming back from fighting in World War II to fight the Nazis, right? And then they come back to their country and they're still considered second-class citizens. The bus boycotts specifically are one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, it, it's amazing what they did. It was a coordinated effort, um, yeah, to, to do a bus boycott, right? Um, but there were many failed attempts leading up to the, the, the famous one where Rosa Parks sat on the bus um, because it was, you know, it was, a, it was a work in progress. They had to create an alternative system for people to get to work. There was so much sacrifice and organization, um, but it was so important and it even inspired ones in Bristol, in England, um, bus boycotts there. Um, and because of that in England, we saw the victory of the Race Relations Act, which made racial discrimination unlawful in public places. So it's, you know, 
acts of civil disobedience, inspiring people across the world to take on the same tactics. I, I love it. Many acts of civil disobedience during this time, like lunch counter sit-ins, the freedom train, um, and we saw leaders emerging who were extremely important to the movement. But unfortunately, the two that I'm gonna speak about, which are the two you're thinking of, um, they were killed before you know, they could have the influence, the potential influence, and they, when they started pointing towards capitalism being the problem. Martin Luther King is gonna be the first example. Although a pacifist, he very much connected race to class. He said the famous quote, and I'm butchering it, so I'm not gonna put up my air quotes, but he said, what's the point of sitting at the lunch counter if I can't afford to buy the burger, right? It's so true. He wanted a reconstruction of society. Maybe he didn't say a socialist society, but a reconstruction nonetheless. And he himself was killed on a picket line of striking sanitation workers fighting to raise the minimum wage. Malcolm X is the other example. And it's so important that we come back to Mal Malcolm X because young people still look to him. Through traveling to Africa is how he learned that the struggle for black liberation has to be an international struggle. He didn't realize this before he traveled. When he went to Africa, he saw that the struggle was not white versus black. It was exploiter versus exploited. And this was fundamental because like I was saying before, this idea of black capitalism, you know, meaning the black owned the businesses, the black owned, you know, the landlords. This idea that black capitalism would solve the problem um, was uh, very popular and, and still is at times. Malcolm X was killed, but the next year we saw the organization of the Black Panther Party form. And as we said earlier, everything is building off of each other. So when the Black Panther Party formed, they weren't a poor, perfect organization, but they grew from the experiences of the civil rights movement in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. They were a Marxist organization, which many people don't know. They did organize only Black people, and they organized the most um, downtrodden Black people, um, you know, the chronically unemployed, for example. And it's understandable why you would want to um, organize the people who have it the worst. But we have to keep in mind that it's the working class that can really affect change in society, um, that can go on strike, that, that, that builds everything, that, you know, we're the working class are the ones that should control the means of production because we, we create them, right? So that was one of their downfalls. But Hollywood likes to focus on the food programs of the Black Panther Party and the guns of the Black Panther Party and the fists of the Black Panther Party, right? But they organized to stop police brutality. When they saw a Black person get pulled over, they would organize to make sure that that black, black person did not get killed or arrested unlawfully. They organized health clinics because of the, the, the fact that, you know, people, yeah, we know why they organized health clinics. Um, and revolutionary education was important to them. And the Black Power Movement, the FIST, as a movement, it was a, it was a huge step forward. It was a huge step forward. It was this move away from pacifism it was a loving of oneself, which is super important, but it was a move away from big business. And in the US, the Black Panther Party wasn't just in the US, but in the US, it meant a move away from the Democratic Party. The orientation of the Black Panthers was towards solidarity and that's what's so important. They would say things like you have to fight racism with solidarity. And they actively did that. They organized with the Young Lords, which were the, the Puerto Rican groups and the Young Patriots, which were the the poor white hillbillies, they organized with all of them. And they made an effort to develop women in their party, which is super important. But unfortunately, many of them were killed. And, and at, 
At their downfall, 30% of their main leaders were imprisoned. They also didn't have a fully worked out Marxist program based on the working class, like I mentioned before. But now we're in the 70s and the state came down heavy around the world. We saw this huge rise in heavy policing. So in the US, it was called the war on drugs. They called drugs public enemy number one, right? And because of the effects of the world war on drugs that still last today, that's why Breonna Taylor was killed. It was a law called, you know, no, uh, they're allowed to do no knock warrants, which meant they can just bust into your house if they think you have drugs because they don't want you to flush them down the toilet. And that's what that that's how they were able to enter her house. And that's why they weren't convicted because of these laws that lasted. In the UK, during this time in the 70s, they used the Vagrancy Act, which was a very old, old, you know, law or rule. And they used this to arrest people. And in London, for example, where only 6% of the people were black at the time, there were 44% of the people arrested. Also in the UK, you saw immigration laws to deny entry, especially when African colonies were gaining independence. And this idea of keeping Britain white. After this, we're, we come to this neoliberal era, um, which just brought terrible conditions to the world, right? We see people losing jobs. We see austerity and programs that, you know, have helped the working class along the way begin to get cut really badly. In the 90s, Bill Clinton basically gutted American welfare and painted it as, a, you know, a bad thing that Black crack moms, you know, um, 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 use, you know, Vill villainifying, is that a word? Vilifying um, uh, the Black working class and coming up with these three strikes policies where if you commit a crime three times, even if it's nonviolent, you go to jail for life. Um, and that, you know, this focus of, of breaking the glass ceiling for Black people as opposed to organizing the Black working class um, is what, you know, was the main ideology. For example, Obama, he's a great example of that. And I can go on for days about how bad Obama was for Black people, but that's not the discussion here today. But the potential has existed and does exist to build a strong movement for Black liberation. You know, we talked about where racism comes from. We talked about the fact that, um, you know, we have to uh, build this united working class movement, but what else is needed? Well, one thing is we need a political alternative. On a very small level, we need candidates that are explicitly anti-racist, that stand up and, and speak out against the atrocities. In the US, we're way worse. We don't even have a party. Right, but the potential exists for one. Um, and I just wanna plug this real quick. The potential exists. We have these, these four women in Congress, women of color, black and brown women called the squad. And this year during the election, you know, they're the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. This, way, this, this year during the election, their, their squad grew. And even um, a, a woman elected official who came out of the Black Lives Matter movement in, in, in St. Louis, Missouri, she's now elected. So we have the, the beginning formations of what we could see push us in the direction of, of a new party led by black and brown women. But what do we need for, political, um, for black liberation? We need labor to be on board explicitly. Now, on the one hand, that means we need union density to be high. In the US, when, when black workers were organized under the United Auto Workers in places like Detroit, this, we saw the highest standard of living for black people. And we see now, especially when, when um, union density goes down, the bosses get richer, right? So on the one hand, we need union density to be high, but we also need the labor unions themselves to take up anti-racist demands. 
We could spread the movement much further if they took up anti-racist demands. And actually throughout history, we've seen how um, when labor doesn't take up social demands, it's actually hurtful to the union itself. We need this united working class movement. We have to acknowledge in England, black people are 3% of the population. In London, that's different, it's 13. And I only know this because I looked up this stuff. But in the US, they're four, black people are 14% of the population, not the majority. But black people are a significant, significant piece of the, of the working class, especially the industrialized working class in cities. Look at what happens when one group of the working class gets attacked, for example, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, and the whole working class stands up and fights back. Workers have more in common with each other than the bosses, and so we must unite on those bases. Um, and like I said, we make everything, so we should control it. But we need an international movement. The movements in Hong Kong inspired people in the U.S. The Nigerian fight against the special police, the Chilean people demanding a new constitution, the women in Poland that are striking for the right to decide what happens to their body, all of these struggles must learn and build from each other. And that itself takes an international movement. We have to organize ourselves on a Marxist basis. And we do that by building the revolutionary party like the Bolsheviks did. But we have to build that party with people that represent oppressed groups like black people. So we have to have an active orientation um, um, to organizing with um, black and brown communities. But we have to acknowledge, and this sometimes is where we may divide um, from people on how to get towards black liberation. The fight to end racism must start and end with the fight against capitalism and for socialism. So I'll end by saying, you know, some of the things that have worked off each other that you know, maybe about 10 years ago, we saw the Arab Spring bleed into the Occupy movement and push the world into struggle. After that, we saw the fight for 15 lead into the Black Lives Matter movement. The demands of this movement have evolved from cops wearing body cameras to defunding the police, to removing Confederate flags and slave owner statues, and to even anti-capitalism in some places. If we want to keep going, and we must keep going, right? Because capitalism, and the drive for endless profits for a few people is literally killing our planet, then we must take seriously our study of history and building a socialist program because only socialism will bring an end to racism. <laughs>